Ave and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast series looking at the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode XII, Tiberius the Gloomiest of Men. When we last left Tiberius, he'd left Rome, made himself scarce, and isolated himself on the island of Capri. Back in Rome, he's left the commander of the Praetorian Guards, Sejanus, in charge by proxy. And that's a situation that the Senate isn't quite comfortable with. Here's Rhiannon Evans. Sejanus should be in charge of the bit of the army that looks after the emperor. But instead, he sort of gets moved sideways and very definitely upwards to being a sort of vice-regent. He doesn't technically have power. He doesn't officially have power, but he becomes the way that you get to Tiberius. Tiberius isn't physically there, and Sejanus is kind of standing in the way, which is sort of what he should be doing as the person who protects the emperor. But now he's, he's leading all information to and from the emperor as well. And that means he has an enormous amount of power and he could possibly abuse that power or he could take on roles that he doesn't officially have. So what's, what's his background? Is probably not a member of the ruling class. Absolutely not. More of a, a man of the people, so to speak. Well, man of the people is all relative, isn't it? He comes from the equestrian class, which is the second class down, and it's still enormously wealthy. All right? If you come from that class, you're not hard up. Mm. But compared to being from the senatorial class, you know, the senators look down on you. He's sort of in the middle, still very elevated, yet not from the very top tier. And there's, there's sort of a tradition that the head of the Praetorian Guard always comes from that class. And indeed, this seems to have been the way that Augustus put things into train in that if there was any particular role that he thought was important, he would choose someone from the equestrian class if that role meant that it could be a danger to him. So, for example, the person in charge of the province of Egypt is from the equestrian class. You don't put a senator there because senators might be able to gather enough support and they might have enough money to rise up against the emperor. You don't put a senator in charge of the Praetorian Guard because he might take that guard on as a private army and turn against the emperor. So being from the equestrian class is a sort of strategic move on the part of the emperors, putting this very important position of protecting them. It's not somebody who comes from the senatorial body. So Sejanus being in that position, he is clearly somebody that Tiberius trusted. Absolutely. How does he use or misuse the role that he's left with, with um, Tiberius being away on Capri? Well, he uses it to build his own system of power, apparently, but this doesn't become clear for five years, at least not clear to Tiberius. For a start, the senators get really annoyed with this because they expect to have access to the emperor. They expect the emperor to listen to them. It might not be like it was in the Republic, but they still regard themselves as having a lot of authority. And obviously, the emperor is not going to come to them because he's not even going to come to Rome. So they can't get to Tiberius unless they go through Sejanus, unless they ask permission to go see him or ask him to carry a letter. And, you know, he might not carry that letter. He might say no. He has enormous power. And, of course, he's an equestrian, so they really resent that. They regard him mm. as an upstart, somebody who should not have this power and yet does. And any letters that are going from Tiberius to the Senate likewise have to go through him. So 
he he's probably using the opportunity to selectively add or remove anything that he doesn't like from he, them. He can certainly prioritize and there's so much resentment that it seems that he he is using this position to build his own power base and you know bring forward laws that he approves of. He's also in charge of Rome at a time when there's increasing paranoia. Um, and this had been happening before Tiberius left Rome. And part of this is that Tiberius put into place a series of laws which are treason laws. Now, these had existed before, but previously they had been, as we would think of treason as being, for acting in a way that is against the state. And Tiberius changes them so that it is acting against the emperor, right? So he makes it personal. And there are some funny stories in Suetonius about how if you, you also couldn't speak out against Augustus, not just Tiberius, so the dead emperor and the current emperor, and that somebody was prosecuted for taking a coin that bore Augustus's head into the lavatory, that that was seen as treason. Wow. So it could be taken to a ridiculous extent, yeah. and there were lots of people, in fact, comparisons have been made between Rome at this point and East Germany, because there are lots of people who are... Um, they're called delatores, and basically they hand over information about people. So you might be shopped by a member of your family or your neighbor, and they can all say, oh, I heard him say something nasty about Tiberius. And that's a capital crime. So Sejanus is in charge of a state where there's a, sort of, there's a lot of tightened tension, and he can also use that. He can, as indeed states still do, they choose a time when people are worried about something to perhaps create rumors about that enemy or create a sense of danger. Therefore, we have to bring in these, these very authoritarian laws. And this is quite useful to first Tiberius and then Sejanus. But Sejanus is also building his own power base in terms of looking to more and more official power because it seems that he was actually composing a conspiracy against Tiberius. And part of that involved the affair that he was having with Livilla, who's the widow of Tiberius's son, Drusus. And he apparently planned to marry her and to set himself up as emperor. So when this became known to Tiberius, he obviously had to get rid of Sejanus, and Sejanus was... It's, it's actually quite a, a nasty story in some ways in that Sejanus thought he was going to the Senate to hear something that was favourable to him and he was actually dragged off to be executed. So it seems that not all channels of communication between Tiberius and Rome were closed at that point if, uh, no, if no. news got back to him. No, and and they never were absolutely. No, he's he's still, you know, everybody wants to convey information to mm. the emperor that's favorable to them and presumably the person who gave up Sejanus benefited from it. He's not completely out of the loop, but he could have been more in the loop if he'd stayed in Rome. <laughs> Having quelled this this uprising from his most trusted man that he left in charge, does he finally pay attention to Rome and come back and, and maybe do what an emperor is meant to do at that point? If anything, he becomes more paranoid and more ensconced on Capri. He so what, what he, is he doing on Capri? He never returns to Rome. Well, according to Suetonius, the biographer, uh, who writes a lot of scurrilous stuff and wants you to read this because it's juicy, 
according to Suetonius, he's there having a very decadent time engaging in all kinds of perverse sexual practices and being very cruel and decadent. There are stories like, and you want to close the ears of small children at this point, that he had beautiful boys brought to him and then he would get into a swimming pool and they had to swim between his legs and things like that. Things that are quite sort yeah. of ew. Mm. And also similar stories with young girls. So it's it's like he's, you know, you, we have this picture, I guess, this stereotype of the, the Roman orgy. And if anything, Tiberius seems to be pretty close to living that out at this point, at least according to Suetonius. We've also more recently discovered that he had a, a sort of semi-underwater building project going so that there's this cavern with phosphorescent light in it that we call the blue grotto where there's a sort of swimming area and there is evidence that there were statues built around it so it was kind of an, a semi-indoor outdoor private swimming area we imagine for him which would have been very beautiful and very private just for the emperor and in this incredibly beautiful area just uh, at the edge of Capri. One of the uses of Capri, allegedly, uh, which is a very rocky island, you know, there's very vertiginous drops from it, is that he had people who'd been prosecuted, who were going to be executed, sent to the island so that they could be thrown off the cliffs. This may or may not be true. It actually doesn't ring that true with me in terms of all of the other evidence suggests that when he went to Capri, he's cutting himself off from Rome. It seems like a lot of effort to send them there specifically for a big swim. Yes. It may be that people who were already there who annoyed him got thrown off, I suppose. Uh, but it's it's definitely meant to show the emperor's cruelty particularly cruel because, of course, the body won't be found and it won't be given any of the proper rights. Of course, something that we need to bear in mind is that Tiberius had removed himself from Rome for 11 years. He wasn't around Nobody, Rome to defend himself. He wasn't around Rome to defend himself, but also the fact that he's away means that there's, there's bound to be a rumour mill happening. People are wondering, what's he doing? What's he doing out there in this very beautiful spot, just mm. whiling his time away? It's not that surprising that stories like this come up. So at this point, is he worried about succession? And who's the likely person to take over from him now that the two that he'd chosen, his nephew and his son, are both dead? Emperors are always worried about succession, partly because they're worried about what people will say about them and do for them after they're dead. You know, they really want to be deified. That was the best possible outcome. So Tiberius has Germanicus's children to consider. He doesn't get on with Germanicus's wife, though, Agrippina, and he's exiled her, and she never comes back. She uh, dies quite quickly, she, doesn't she? She dies. With her two children. Yeah, with, well. her t with two of her sons, mm. Nero and Drusus, another Drusus, and not the Nero who will eventually be emperor, a different Nero. All of them die in exile. But there is a third son, Gaius, and he has the nickname Caligula. He is going to be the next emperor, and he seems to be groomed for that role for a few years before Tiberius's death. He's, he's actually been sent off to Capri to live with Tiberius, which is a sign that he's next in line. Caligula is fairly young and impressionable, and 
uh, when we come to talk about Caligula, we'll see that there are far worse stories about Caligula than there were about Tiberius. But some people put that down to the time he spent on Capri, that he's actually sort of warped by this. Learned from the best. Mm, exactly. He really is the clear successor, and I guess we all know that Caligula is notorious now, that he's notorious for cruelty and deviance and so on. But for the Romans of that period, he was the remaining son of Germanicus, who was still in favour. And Germanicus was still revered and held up as this, this figure who could have been the great emperor. And really, I think that's what the Romans are waiting for now, because... Augustus had managed to retain his popularity throughout his reign, despite some quite tyrannical behaviour to certain individuals. Tiberius certainly did not manage that. His reputation was in tatters. You know, he had very bad PR. He didn't seem to care about it. When he dies in his will, he leaves his uh, he leaves Caligula in power, but also his own grandson. He has a grandson who was actually a twin, but the other twin died. He's called Tiberius Gemellus, which means Tiberius the twin. He's a little bit younger than Caligula, and he's someone who's seen as a potential successor. He's actually direct bloodline, but he is very young, and he does not survive. So what's the thinking behind putting both of them in, in power? Why not just name one of them? I guess the fact that, you know, so many people died young at that point and yeah. he's already lost two and he saw Augustus lose a lot of young relatives. So you try and shore it up and try and prevent the kind of situation he had with Sejanus where people see a chance from elsewhere to get in on the act. And we're not that far away from the Republic at this point at least. And there is still very much that remnant of Republican thought that... It's about your family, your gains, the Romans call it. And you need someone from your family to be the next one in line, to be the next one in line in your family traditionally. But now that your family is the imperial family, that includes power over the whole empire. Mm. So given how things go for the Julio-Claudians, I gather that Tiberius died of old age, but there are going to be rumours? There are. There are rumours that... It may have been hastened to ensure the succession of Caligula, perhaps. But he, he was old by this point. He was in his 70s. Mm. And there's no real reason to think that he didn't die a natural death. He so, was actually on his way back to Rome, sadly, oh, when he died. Okay. <laughs> he was actually thinking of coming back to Rome, but he didn't make it. Wow. Okay. That's maybe a bit telling. So, so how, is, how is he remembered? What's his legacy? That he's left behind. Oh, he's, he's remembered as a very grumpy character, mm. I guess. He didn't get what he almost certainly would have wanted out of creating the succession. He wasn't deified. And this, I mean, we're fairly early on in the process of emperors at this point. Okay, before we have officially have emperors, we've got Julius Caesar who's been deified. Augustus is deified. It's starting to look like a pattern. But when it's broken, you know that the emperor was unpopular at the time of their death. Their successor hasn't bothered to deify them. Mm. In a way, Tiberius has already done that kick in the face to somebody else in that he didn't deify his mother, Livia, the wife of Augustus, who almost certainly expected it and eventually is deified, but not from another two emperors. Her grandson, Claudius, will deify her. 
All right. So a bit like who gets into the mausoleum of Augustus and who doesn't. If you're an emperor or even an emperor's wife, an indication of how popular you are with the next regime is do they deify you or not? Well, Tiberius doesn't get it. And no massive building projects or anything like that? Another reason for his lack of popularity in Rome, not only is he not giving them games, but he isn't giving them any new glamorous buildings like Augustus did. And it's quite telling that the one thing he is remembered for is a very practical building project, and that is he builds the, the camp for the Praetorian Guard, which hadn't had one specific place to be located until then, and it's on the edge of Rome, and he builds this Praetorian camp for them there. It kind of sums up who he was. He's very practical. He was a military figure. He doesn't really care about more beautification. He just does something that is, is kind of good for the army. It is an important legacy, but it's not for the general public. It's not for the people of Rome. It's not going to make him popular. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. And you've been listening to Emperors of Rome. So if you like this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Tell your friends about the podcast and leave a review. You can follow both Rhiannon and myself on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans and I'm at Nightlight Guy. We've also got a Facebook page, so please like us on Facebook and join in the conversation. Coming soon on Emperors of Rome, Caligula. And for a guy who is only emperor for four years, there's a lot to cover in that time. Until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening.